Hello and welcome to Grace Life Tigerville, a church situated in the northern suburbs of Cape Town. We pray that this teaching will awaken your heart to the reality of Christianity, which is Christ in you, and that it will result in increased fruitfulness in your life. So we are busy with a series called Unbroken Intimacy, and the hardened desire of this series and the, the, the series falls within the theme of focusing on the Holy Spirit specifically. And the awesome thing with the, the, this theme, it touches all areas of our lives. It's like, a, it's funny, and when we talked about, we're going to talk about the theme of the Holy Spirit, it was difficult to even call it a theme because it's not a theme really. As much as the gospel is not a theme. The gospel is the message. The Holy Spirit is the answer. And so, Within this theme, we're really focusing on this oneness that we are enjoying with God and how it's an unbroken oneness. And we're going to look at this unbrokenness specifically in this morning's message, which is entitled Sealed by the Spirit. Sealed by the Spirit. Let's go to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, who of you can testify, I want to ask a few questions. Who of you can testify that when God does something, He does it well? When God does something, He does it well. He does not miss any detail. He does not make mistakes. He does it right. He doesn't leave out a thing. When God does something, He considers all of the repercussions. And that's the awesome thing with God sending Jesus. He knew that some people would say no. Yet that didn't withhold him from being vulnerable and taking the biggest risk of human history. He thought of everything from the beginning to the end. God knows all things, the beginning to the end. And when he does something, he does it well. Some people think that Satan caught God off God in the garden. It's like God was unaware of what was coming. It's like, man, Satan had this, this, this. He, he pulled one on the river. For those of you guys know a poker term, <laughs> he pulled one on the river. No, Satan didn't catch God off God in the garden. In 1 Timothy, talking about this, this amazing plan of God, 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Good and acceptable, pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If this is God's will, willing that all be saved, or another word to say, willing, desiring, craving for all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. If this is God's desire, if this is His will, do you think He'll make it difficult for people to receive this? Do you think He'll make this complicated for people to receive this? No. Some of you, some of you unfortunately, might think He... God is going to try and make it as difficult as possible for people because He's just funny like that. No, that's not the nature of God. He's kind, He's loving, He's patient. Now, side note, if this is God's ultimate desire, 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 to 4, if this is God's ultimate desire, why are we not fulfilled in this? I'm going to ask that again. If this is God's ultimate desire... For the world to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth, salvation basically means is having the Spirit of God live inside of you. 
So if this is God's desire, first and foremost, receiving the Spirit and then growing in the knowledge of the truth, if this is God's desire, why are we not fulfilled by it? I'm speaking we as in general. You have to ask this question for yourself personally, individually. Why are we not fulfilled by God Almighty in all of His wisdom and all of His foresight having this as His one and only desire for the world to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth? Why are we not fulfilled and desired in this thing? Why are we seeking fulfillment elsewhere? Why is that? It's simple. We don't know what we have. The Spirit of God in man. It always boils down to that. John 8 verse 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if you don't know something, you cannot experience the freedom of that. Isaiah 4 verse 6 says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. It's not my people are destroyed because it's so hot out there. Or my people are destroyed because Russia is invading Ukraine. I'm not demising what is happening, but Ukraine and Russia is in the state that it is. The world is in the state that it is, not because of anything other than knowing God Almighty and coming to receive His love and His grace and the Spirit of God living in them and growing in that truth. It's that simple. The gospel is the answer to the world's problems. How can you say that, Etienne? Because that is what the Bible declares. Now think about this, grace and love made salvation a free will offer and wisdom made it impossible for you to undo what God does at salvation. I'm going to explain this for us. Grace and love made salvation a free will offer and God in His wisdom made it impossible for you to undo what He does at salvation. What happens at salvation? A lot of people don't know this. You become a new creation. You don't become a fixed creation, you become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, a new form of being. It's like metamorphosis, metamorphosis. Um, when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, it becomes a new species. You are a new species with the Spirit of God living inside of you. You're not, not a fixed up species, you're a new species. His Spirit in man, a miracle that cannot be undone. Now I'm going to explain this because all of this sounds very philosophical. The tongue twisters this morning. My Afrikaans is kind of coming through here. This all sounds very nice and philosophical and talking about the Spirit of God in man and how God made this available free will and um, how this is impossible to undo what God done at salvation all sounds very nice and philosophical and you can quote me and but none of this matters if it cannot be backed up with the word of God I want to encourage you whatever you hear however good the story might sound there's a lot of good sounding stories within the body of Christ good explanations of this parable of that parable side note a parable needs to be explained by the person who gave the parable common sense right how common is common sense these days A parable needs to be explained by the person giving the parable. Why? Because they used the parable as a teaching aid to explain something so they knew what the intent of the parable was. So let's not go and make our own doctrines and theories of parables that had a specific intent within the word. 
Okay, let's get into the word. Ephesians 1.13. How do we get sealed? Talking about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, it's very simple. In whom also you trusted after you heard the word of truth. Highlight, heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also after you believed, highlight believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What is the requirements of salvation? Is it going to church? Is it reading your Bible? Is it being a good person? What is the requirement for salvation? It is believing. How do you believe? Romans 10 talks about this. How can they believe unless there's a preacher? What is a preacher? It's a messenger. All of you guys, let's walk out of this room this morning. All of you are a messenger. You carry a specific message. If you've come to know Christ, you could only come to know Christ through hearing a specific message and believing that message. And if that is you this morning, the question is this, what are you doing with that message? Say with me, a good word is a challenging word. Because who of you wants to be challenged through the word? Anyone? I'm in very good company. Praise God. I'm raising my hand with you guys. I want to be challenged with the word. I want to be challenged because when we are challenged with the word and when we're coming with the word, with the approach of humility, saying that I do not have it all figured together. I don't have it figured out. I'm not walking in every fulfillment and every manifestation of Jesus. I want to be challenged by the word and align my heart with what the word intends for me, what the word is trying to communicate with me. And when we approach it like that, we can grow from it. We can step to uh, step up to the plate, so to speak. So after they heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, there's no other word of truth. This is the only word. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he said, I am the gospel. I'm a manifestation of the gospel. I came to fulfill the promise of God. I came to manifest the glory of God. And that glory, side note, that glory was only truly and fully manifested after the Spirit of God was poured out. Because Jesus walking in His flesh on earth, healing the sick, doing signs, wonders, and miracles, preaching amazing sermons, was not a fulfilled promise yet. It was still walking out, fulfilling that which God desired from the beginning of time, which we've been continually reiterating, the Spirit of God in man. So we need to hear the gospel, believe the gospel. Christianity is all about our oneness with Christ. The moment we said yes to Jesus, you are spiritually fused together with Him. Luke chapter 15, we, we sang this song beautiful about the prodigal. And Luke chapter 15 is the story about the prodigal son. And we're just going to look at verse 22 for this morning. I encourage you to, to go and meditate and, and look at, again, talking about the parables and how the, 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 the giver of the parables should be giving us the, the, the definition of the parable, the intent of the parable. And the awesome thing with, with Jesus, whenever he gave parables, at times he explained the parables, but then when he didn't explain the parables, it would just require common sense to know that whatever Jesus said needs to be, whatever, whatever definition we come up with from a parable that wasn't explained by Jesus 
for themselves, it needs to be explained through the Word. We need to use the Word to interpret the Word. We can't use philosophy. We can't use Google. We can't use our pastors. And We need to use the Word of God to interpret the Word of God. Amen? It should go without saying, right? <laughs> so Luke chapter 15, I want to focus in on this, this idea that everything points to this perfect plan of God. 1 Timothy 2.4. Everything points to this perfect plan of God. Luke 15.22 from the Passion, it says, Turning to his servants, the father said, Quick. So this is when the prodigal, just to give you background, this is when the prodigal came back from squandering all of his, his inheritance, coming back with the speech to, to, to ask for forgiveness of his father. And the father sees his son and he says, Turn it, and, he, and he runs to his, his son already. And that's a beautiful picture because culturally speaking, this was an embarrassment to the father. For the father to, to, to gird up his loins, what he's basically doing is he pulled up his dress so that he could run more purposefully towards his son. It was culturally something to not be done. But this is how much God love us, loves us because he does not consider cultural relevance when he loves us. He does not consider what is easy. It does not consider what is commonly acceptable. He loves us in a way that is very radical and in a way that we cannot always understand with our human minds. That's why we need the teacher, which is the Holy Spirit. Some of you wanted to say Etienne. And I am a, I'm, I'm good at teaching because I've got the Spirit of God inside of me. Um, but the Holy Spirit is the perfect teacher. So it says, turning to his servants, the father said, quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I'll place it on his shoulders. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the symbolisms here, but there's, there's really an amazing symbolisms. Firstly, uh, it's awesome how the Passion talks about my very own robe. This is a, a, a picture of clothing him with something. What did God do to Adam and Eve? He clothed them. They tried to clothe themselves with some leaves, and then God did a better job. He used animal skins. If you'd had an option, leaves or animal skins, I'm pretty sure all of us would uh, go with animal skins or uh, maybe wrong crowd. I know culturally maybe it's uh, also a, a sensitive topic. Um, but the point is this, that the father clothed his son with his robe. And I'll place it on his shoulders. Bring me the ring, the seal of sonship. This is where we're going to camp on. Bring me the ring, the seal of sonship, and I'll put it on his finger and bring out the best shoes you can find for my son. We're not going to get into the, the shoes analogies now. I just want to focus in on bring the ring, the seal of sonship. So we're talking about the seal of the Holy Spirit, and it's awesome how we see the scarlet thread, so to speak, throughout the old to the new of the promise of God, which is the Spirit of God in man and the significance of His Spirit in man and what that means for us. In Romans 8, verse 15 to 16, it says from the message, This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a child like what's next, Papa. God's Spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who He is and we know who we are, Father and children. This is the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit that we've been given. A Spirit that confirms our sonship. 
That's why it's awesome how when this father gives his son the seal, the ring, it's a seal of authentication. You belong to this family. That is the Holy Spirit of God. You belong to the family of God. He's given you this ring. And we're going to see some amazing other analogies of this ring, the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 11.25 says, He did the same with the cup. This is powerful. The purpose of the Scripture, the purpose of the Word is to point us to Christ. Genesis to Malachi, the all pointing to the coming. The Gospels pointing to the, the, the walking Messiah, the Gospel uh, reincarnate, Right? And then we see the church of Acts, the birth of the first people group to receive the promise. The church of Acts is the first people group who received the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what is recorded in the book of Acts is eyewitness accounts of what they saw the believers partaking of and what was happening. Right? And then we see the letters talking about the manifestation using the scriptures as a textbook for what they're recording. That's why the, the scriptures are continually referenced in the epistles, because that is their textbook they're using, because they didn't have any other textbook. They didn't have Genesis uh, to Revelation like we have today. So what we see in the epistles is recordings of this is what happened, this is what the scriptures pointed to, and this is the reality now. That is why Paul says in Colossians that the mystery of the past has been revealed. What is the mystery? Christ in you. Not mysteries. One mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why do we make it about a lot of things? Because we do not value the one thing enough. The body of Christ has made Christianity about a lot of things. All of us experience that, right? We've made it about so many things. Because we haven't become satisfied in the one thing. Mary and Martha. Martha runs around doing a whole bunch of good things. I'm now using an analogy. But the analogy rings true. Because when Jesus told Mary, you have chosen the one thing. Or he responded to Martha. You have chosen the one thing that will not be taken away from you. What was that one thing? Abiding in Christ. Sitting at his feet. When we become saturated with and convinced of and overwhelmed with this one desire of God for the world to be saved and coming to this knowledge of the one truth, His Spirit in man, man, we will stop running after the whole bunch of distortions of what is in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 11.25, let's see how this points to Jesus. And when I say pointing to Jesus, I'm not saying pointing to Jesus of the Gospels before the fulfillment of death, resurrection, outpouring, right? That's the problem. Too often when we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus in the flesh. We're not thinking about Jesus' spirit inside of me. God did not want His church to camp on and to live in a place of Jesus' life before Pentecost. How can I say that? Because God's dream, God's desire has always been one thing. From the beginning of time in the garden, He spread living in man. That's why the tree is called the tree of life. How do you enjoy the tree of life? 
to receive the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 11.25 He did the same with the cup of wine after supper and said, This cup seals the new covenant with my blood. Drink it, and whenever you drink this, do in remembrance of me. Paul is quoting Jesus. He's quoting the, the recording of the, 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 the Passover meal. And we're going to get into this a little bit now. First question. When was the new, as Jesus was talking about here, this cup seals the new covenant with my blood. When was the new fully established, or as Jesus specifically said, when was the new sealed? Think about this. Because he's talking about something, he says, this cup is the new that is being sealed, that is being fulfilled. When did that take place? It starts with a big P word. Cost. Okay, let's continue. The cup and the wine that Jesus was referring to is a type of that of the Holy Spirit. How can I say that? Because the only way that you can be sealed is not by drinking a cup. It goes without saying. Oh, okay, it doesn't go without saying. The only way that you can receive the Spirit of God, it's not by drinking a cup. It's by partaking of the Holy Spirit. How do you partake of the Holy Spirit? You receive. You open up your heart to receive the Spirit of God. And we'll t- talk a little bit about the word partaking and uh, uh, Jesus, or the Paul quote, uh, now, it's difficult because it's a quotation of Jesus, but it's Paul writing in Corinthians, so um, let's keep it with Paul's writing. Okay, so Paul is writing, he says, drink it, and whenever you drink this, do in remembrance of me. Again, the question, just to reiterate, how do you receive the Spirit of God? How do you receive the Spirit of God? By believing. We just looked at it. You hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, you are sealed. You believe and you receive the Spirit of God. Now when Jesus is talking about drinking it, we've kind of got caught up in the mindset of the Passover meal, not considering the type and shadow of what Jesus was actually referring to here. Because the Holy Spirit of God is talked about so often rivers of living water flowing from within you, gushing forth from within you. Drink it, and whenever you drink this, drink is often a metaphor for partaking. Drinking or eating is a a, a metaphor for partaking, engaging. So when he says, drink this, and when you're drinking this, you'll remember me. What is he saying, in fact? He's saying that when you're partaking of the Holy Spirit, guess what the Holy Spirit is going to do? He'll always confess Jesus as Lord. When we partake of the Holy Spirit, truly in, in simplest forms, He will always remind us of Jesus and our oneness with Him. This is what Jesus talked about when He talked about the Lord's Supper or the, the, the Passover meal. And He's talking about the cup. And this cup is the new covenant that is sealed. That covenant was sealed when His Spirit was poured out. As the blood of Jesus was poured out, so the Spirit of God was poured out. When he's talking about my body, he's talking about we are the body of Christ. Partake of one another on a daily basis. 
Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, don't get drunk. I want to just build on this partaking of drinking a little bit further for us to further illustrate and paint this picture. And don't get drunk with wine, which is rebellion. Instead, be filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go and read Ephesians chapter 5, this phrase and how Paul comes up with the statement, don't get drunk with wine, is very random within the context. And oftentimes people go on a tangent here and make this, this verse about the abuse of alcohol and how we shouldn't abuse alcohol. <laughs> Man, when we make the word things that it was never intended to be, it just, it, it just frustrates and nullifies the working of God within the believer, as Paul says in Galatians 20, 21. And don't get drunk with wine, which is rebellion. Guess what? This statement and this phrase of rebellion is the same picture that we see in the prodigal son. When he went away from the father, it was rebellion. So rebellion is anything and everything that does not magnify the finished work of Jesus. Rebellion, I'm going to say that again. Rebellion, which is basically another word for unbelief. Why am I saying it's unbelief? Because the son did not believe what he had in the story of the prodigal. The son did not believe in what he had, how good he had it. And because he had unbelief in that, he rebelled. Any form of rebellion is always a manifestation of not believing something good. Man, is it so, the Christian life is so simple. Any form of sin is a manifestation of not believing who you are. Instead, be filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens when you drink wine? I know some of you don't drink wine, and that's fine. But bear with me. I do drink wine, and in my past, I've drank more wine than I was supposed to. I know none of you have ever overdid anything. I I've overdid it. And uh, praise God that He didn't choose me because I was perfect. He doesn't choose any of you because you're perfect. He chooses you because He is perfect and He loves you perfectly. But when you're drinking wine and you're drinking more of it, you start to have a specific reaction to it. It starts affecting your emotions. It starts, starts affecting your habits. And that's why this is such a beautiful illustration of being filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not talking about being filled with the Spirit and being filled again and again and again. Because we've already established you receive the Spirit of God and you are sealed with it. And that seal is never broken. Because once a seal is put on you, it stays there. The Father didn't give His Son a ring because He had good behavior. If you've read the story, you would see it's quite the contrary. There was a lack of good behavior to the son. And then the father gave him his ring because he wanted to seal him with his love. He wanted to demonstrate that his love for him was unconditional. It's a story of God's love for us. And when the seal took place, when it came upon him, it wasn't because of anything he did. And it's the same with us. We cannot receive the Holy Spirit by any good works. But when we see this picture that Jesus is talking about, in the supper, drink this, remembering me. It's a continual reminder through the Spirit of what we've got. And when we're talking about drinking of wine, you can only stay intoxicated as long as you are consuming. What do I mean? 
the effect that wine is going to have on you is only going to have effect on you as long as you are partaking. Connect the dots. You've got the Spirit of God inside of you, but His effect on you is going to be determined by how much you are partaking of Him. How do we partake of the Holy Spirit? There's various ways that we get to partake of the Holy Spirit. Primarily, it comes through the Word and allowing Him to teach us through the Word. It comes through the gathering of the believers, partaking of the Spirit of God within one another. It comes through praying in the Spirit. It comes just through meditating on the goodness and the love of God. There's many different ways that we get to partake in the Spirit. When we're partaking, we're going to experience the effect of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at, in closing, the benefits of our, our seal. Because we started laying this foundation that God is a perfect plan and when He does something, He fail proves it, right? He doesn't miss the details. Ephesians 1, 10 to 14 says, And because of God's unfailing purpose, say unfailing. So it wasn't a failing purpose, but it was an unfailing purpose. This detailed plan will reign supreme through every period of time until the fulfillment of all the ages finally reaches its climax. When God makes all things new, all of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ, through our union with Christ, we too have been claimed by God as His own inheritance. Before we were even born, He gave us our destiny that we would fulfill the plan of God who always accomplishes every purpose and plan in His heart. This is awesome. Again, some people go into this and they just mess it up. God had a plan. But who, this is awesome, listen to this. We too have been claimed by God for His own inheritance. Before, before we were even born, He gave us our destiny. Each one of us has a destiny. That we would fulfill the plan of God. Question. Who fulfills the plan of God? Is it God? We fulfill the plan of God. Who always accomplishes every purpose and plan in his heart. So God planned this. He laid it out for us. But we need to come in an agreement. That is what faith is called. That is what believing is called. That we would fulfill the plan of God. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to long for the messianic hope would be the first to believe in the anointed one. So now it's elaborating on this plan and bring great praise and glory to God. And because of him, when you who are not Jews heard the revelation truth, you believed in the wonderful news of salvation. Now we have been stamped with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. He is given to us like an engagement ring is given to a bride as the first installment of what is coming. He is our hope promise of a future inheritance which seals us until we have all of redemption's promises and experience complete freedom all for the supreme glory and honor of God. Is God a faithful God? Who have you heard of people who got engaged and then they broke the engagement? I've heard of it. My brother's done it. I'm not making a joke of my brother. He's awesome. He's engaged now and he's staying engaged. Why do people break engagements? Be 
because they're people. Is God unfaithful or a person? So when He's given you an engagement ring, is He going to take it back from you? I'm, I'm trusting you guys are connecting some super valuable dots here. I'm going to seal the deal, so to speak, for us in a moment. If you haven't connected the dots yet, we have been stamped with the seal of the promise, Holy Spirit. He's given to us like an engagement ring. He's given to a bride as the first installment of what is coming. This first installment basically is just talking about when Jesus comes to restore and returns everything to the way that God has always designed it to be. Our bodies and our souls, everything being perfectly um, renewed. A question I want to ask you is, what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? Jude 1.24 says, Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into His glorious presence without a single fault. Some of us have never read the scripture. Now all glory to God. Who? To God. Who is able to do what? He's able to keep you from falling away. What is able to do? To keep you from falling away and will bring you. What will he do? He will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Man, this is awesome. Because it's not us that keep ourselves. It's not us in our holy living and our good works that brings ourselves into the presence of God. No, he brings us into his presence by his spirit, through his spirit, because of the spirit of God in us, we will stand before him without a single fault. That is the gospel. That is the promise of God. And you will not live a satisfied, fulfilled, joyous life until this becomes your reality. What is God asking of you to become his child? A big nothing. Zero. What is he asking you to remain his child after you receive the spirit? Nothing. A big zero. What has God promised the world from the beginning of time? His spirit. This isn't a contract where two parties have to keep their end of the deal. I'm going to say this again. Because oftentimes we look at the word of God and we read specific words and we think that God made a contract where I'm only going to keep my end if you keep your end. When God sent Jesus, He didn't send us because we were good. Romans 5 verse 8 says that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Christ was sent for you while you were an enemy of God. God is the one who made a promise and all we need to do is believe that promise and hold on to, wait for it, His faithfulness. Because He is more faithful than you are. He's more capable of keeping you than you are capable of keeping yourself. Some of you don't believe that and that's fine. I'm going to go with the word. 2 Corinthians 5, 5 from the Passion. We're coming to a close. Hold on to your seats, guys. Don't uh, unbuckle just yet. Stay seated. 
Second Corinthians 5, 5 says, And this is no empty hope, for God himself is the one who has prepared us for this wonderful destiny. Again, over and over again, it is in the word. He is the one who has prepared us for this wonderful destiny. And to confirm his promise, he has given us the Holy Spirit like an engagement ring as a guarantee. What's a guarantee? It's a guarantee for whatever the terms are. God gave you the guarantee. Money back guarantee. There's no coming back from this. 2 Corinthians 1.22, last passage of Scripture. And we're talking about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And this is a valuable truth that you need to seal in your heart. That you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that what God has done through that sealing, no man can undo. Because He is more faithful, even when, uh, we're not going to go to that scripture now, but there's a scripture that says that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, He knows we are His since he has also stamped his seal of love over our hearts and has given us the Holy Spirit like an engagement ring is given to a bride, a down payment of the blessings to come. Now, I just want to look at seven awesome analogies linking to this picture of a seal. And if you can study it out, you see this throughout the word being confirmed. And the word seal is used throughout the Bible in many applications, and we're going to look at seven of those applications in light of us being sealed with the Holy Spirit and the significance of the sealing. A seal was often used in light of security, and generally speaking, we see that or in light also of authentication. So when someone sends an envelope in olden times, it was sealed with the king's signet, right? as an approval or as an indication that this is authenticated by the king. And then it's also sealed for security purposes, so no one could read that. And this is our sealing of the Holy Spirit. We are, are sealed for security purposes. Nothing can contaminate your spirit. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are sealed. You are authenticated by God, His very own. And that's the other significance of the prodigal that was given the ring by his father, before that ring was given, he was just an outsider. He was an outcast. But as soon as the father gave him his ring, he had belonging again. He belonged to someone. A seal also certified genuineness. It wasn't a fraud. It's no counterfeits. We have been sealed with the real deal. A seal was also an indication of ownership. We are owned by God. We belong to God. We have been given a seal of approval. You are approved by God. You don't need to work for His approval because you've got His Spirit inside of you. A seal of righteousness. This is beautiful. By faith, Abraham was made righteous. By faith, we are made righteous because of the Spirit of God now living inside of us and sealing us with His righteousness. And the last one, a seal denoting a promise to be fulfilled. As we've read already, the engagement ring, a down payment for something to yet to come. In closing, man made seals are broken, altered, etc. 
but God's seal of His Spirit cannot be broken or altered. That is the take-home. If you look at man-made seals, they are broken, they are altered. Contracts are broken, they are altered. But when God seals something, He does it well. We already started off this meeting by asking a question. When God does something, does He do it well? Does He think about the details? Does He think about all of the things that could go wrong, so to speak? And so when God seals us with His Holy Spirit, and as we've already established, He is faithful. He will keep us to the end. He will bring us into the presence of God without any fault. Man-made seals are broken and altered by God's seal. His Spirit cannot be broken. It cannot be altered. You are eternally, eternally secure as a child of God. Once you've received His Spirit, You are stamped, approved, you are signed, sealed, and delivered for all of time. If you're ever in the Tigerberg area, we invite you to visit us at one of our gatherings. To find out more, please contact us at info at gracelife.co or visit us at gracelife.co.